So, Pastor John is going to be bringing a picture in here in just a minute, um, and I'm going to share a little bit about this picture. Today, we're going to talk about how do we deal with the challenges and, and, and the pain that comes in life? How do we deal with those things? When we planted Crossroads Fellowship, which was the first church that Sarah and I uh, planted, that's the first time that I served as a senior pastor, I was at another church, the mother church of that church, for just a little while, just a tiny little while, um, to plant a daughter church. Boy, I'm worried about this. So, Missy, you're going to come here and be my assistant, okay? So, you, you won't have to stay here the whole sermon. <clears throat> just 25 minutes of it. No, I'm just kidding. So, so when we went to, so we planted Crossroads and, and, and as we started the church, you know, we came around and we started with 11 people and things were going fine, you know, I mean, we're growing the church and all this stuff and inevitably in life, and this isn't about church, this is just about life, my story just happens to be about church, Okay. In life, inevitably, challenges and struggles come, and we had a lady uh, whose name is Darlene, who really began to struggle with where we were going and and how we were getting there and all of these kind of different things. And and Darlene sent an email to my district superintendent at the time, and in the email it said, it was very short, it's like a couple sentences, but it said I was a cult leader. And... Kind of, that's one of those things you don't really want to get sent to your boss, <laughs> you know, the, the cult leader. So for those who are, I'm going to bring it back and you're going to hold it again. So for those who are having a hard time seeing it over here, you kind of look at the picture. You can, you can see this picture. I'm going to talk about this in a minute. This is actually something the Lord, a picture that the Lord gave to somebody else that I end up having to get, okay? And I'll show it a little bit more. That is not wheat. Some of you are thinking that's wheat. It's not wheat. Uh, Wheat heads are much smaller. That's barley. But anyhow, um, so Darlene wrote the district superintendent, told him I was a cult leader. District superintendent said, so what do you know about this? I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I haven't seen the email, you know, so we'll deal with it. So we called together an elder meeting and the wives, and and I was going to, some of you have heard this story, but I think this is the first time I publicly shared it from the pulpit to this level at, at OCCA. So I'm at a prayer meeting that day, the Thursday, we're going to have an emergency elders and their wives meeting because Darlene was an elder's wife. And uh, so we're having this emergency meeting, and while I go to this prayer meeting with all these pastors that I prayed with on Thursday, I walk in, and the one guy, he was at a, oh, nice. (laughs) So Missy transformed into a chair. (laughs) You know. Don Perry gave it away. I just kept thinking, Don kept looking like he doesn't know what's behind him. But so <laughs> anyways, um, but uh, you're much smarter than I am or whoever brought that chair up is. I don't know. So anyways, uh, we walk in and Graham Harvey was a pastor friend of mine. Graham Harvey is why I'm probably even in ministry today. He, when I very first came to that uh, prayer meeting a year before, I was really having a hard time. And Graham just really, he got that, he actually didn't even know me, laid down on the ground, grabbed a hold of my feet and started praying for me. But we walk into Graham's church, and in Graham's church there was a lady, uh, Linda, who's kind of bizarre, you know, she's one of those Jesus freaks. 
And, and I'm saying that kindly. I'm saying like other Jesus freaks think Linda's a Jesus freak. So, you know, but we come in and Linda draws pictures in chalk all the time during worship. And we walked in to the prayer meeting at their building at the worship center they worshiped in. And this picture is on the easel that she had drawn that Sunday. And, and immediately when we walked in the door, I never really gave Linda's pictures any thought. And the Lord said, look at that picture. And I looked at the picture and he said, now ask Graham what it means. And I said, Graham, what, what does this picture mean? And Graham said, oh, well, that's a, uh, or I said, what does that picture of wheat mean? He goes, come on, Jerry, you grew up agricultural animal science. You know, that's not wheat, that's barley. And he said, but here's what it means. This is the picture that the Lord gave her during worship. And in the worship time, she drew this barley and a lot of Jewish tradition teaches that when fields would begin to become ripe, they would see which section was going to be ripe first. And so they would take a scarlet string out and tie it around that bundle. And then when the, that, that's how they would know what the first fruits were. Because in Israel, they were to take the first fruits and go and out of a barley field like that and wave it as a wave offering before the Lord. Kind of like people were waving their palms this morning, right? They would wave this as a wave offering before the Lord. For those of you who struggle with maybe the flags and all that stuff, we're supposed to give wave offerings, okay? But, uh, and, the, so the string, what the Jews didn't know is all this time, the string was actually pointing towards the blood of Christ. And, and I said, okay, so what's the whole message from it? And he said, the whole message from it is keep your eyes on the harvest. Keep your eyes on the harvest. So the whole message of this picture was to keep your eyes on the harvest. And so you can see there's the bundle of barley inside the picture. And it's tied with a scarlet string. And it's representative of keeping our eyes on the harvest. And the Lord said, now I want you to buy that picture. And I want you to take it to your elder meeting tonight. And I want you to put it in a place in the room where only you can see it. And every time you want to speak, I want you to shut up, look at the picture, and keep your eyes on the harvest. I just had an elder's wife accuse me of being a cult leader. And the Lord told me to shut up and look at a chalk drawing. We get to the meeting that night. Elders and their wives. And I told my wife what the Lord told me. Because sometimes I have a hard time shutting up. And so every time during the meeting, we're at the meeting that night, every time in the meeting I'd start to talk, my wife would squeeze my knee and kind of motion towards the picture. You know, motion like, look at the picture. Keep your eyes on the harvest. So we get to the meeting and Darlene comes in with the, the, the DV, the Darlene version of the Bible. Like she has went through and cut and paste a bunch of scriptures into like a, I, it was like 20 something page document I think. It was thick. And had a copy for every elder and their wife. And handed it out as we start talking and she is just going through and reading and it's this verse with this verse with this verse and it looks, she's pieced it all together where it like flows like it's all one book 
And she's reading all of this and reading all of this and reading all of this. And boy, I'm, I've about had enough. And my wife squeezes my knee and she tells me getting ready to talk. And, find, and one of the elders' wives that was there that's not really ever aggressive, Melissa, says, okay, Darlene, we understand. You have scripture. What's the point? This goes on, things like this, all night long. Me never saying a word. And, and at the end of the, at the end of the conflict, at the, or at the end of the time of my silence, and, and the ins and outs of everything that happened in that meeting are irrelevant to the point that I'm trying to make. At the end of that time, <clears throat> Catherine Katowski, who never spoke in a meeting ever, who was a lawyer, said, okay, we've all heard enough. And Catherine, I guess, is like E.F. Hutton. When she talked, everybody listened. It's like Catherine never says anything. And Catherine says, Darlene, we understand your issue. We understand that you feel like Jerry is influencing people. She said, any pastor worth his salt is supposed to be influencing people. The question about whether his influence is whether or not it's godly or worldly. So we're just going to go around and, t- and ask everybody. And Catherine, I mean, nobody's asked Catherine to do anything. This is just Catherine just jumped in here. She goes, godly, worldly, godly, worldly, godly, worldly, all the way around the circle. And everybody says godly, including Darlene's husband. At which juncture, God says, you may now speak. Dismiss Darlene from the room. And we did. And what happened in all of this is that God defended me. Not me. I kept my mouth shut. There were so many times I wanted to talk. There were so many times that I wanted to say something. But then, you know, we had to remember that Paul says that God told him that his strength is made perfect in Paul's weakness. We sang this song at at our church. We sing it here sometimes. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. And you remember in that song, it's called Everlasting God. It says, you are the defender of the weak. You comfort those in need. This was something becoming very real inside of my life, that God was the defender of the weak. But what does this mean that He's the defender of the weak? Is this only a promise that God will defend those who are too helpless to help themselves? He'll only take care of the widows. He'll only take care of the orphans. He'll only take care of of people with mental uh, incapacities. He'll only take care of stuff like that. Or will God take care of those people who willingly lay aside their strength, their presence of mind, their abilities? And will He take care of them? For the answer to that, we're going to turn to the Scriptures. So I want you to look at Hebrews 11, verses 23 through 28. I woke up Monday morning, very early Monday morning, or very early in the Monday morning routine. The Lord said, I want you to preach on me defending the weak. And it's actually what's next in in the book of Hebrews. And I'm like, okay. So I went and looked, and here's the Scriptures as I saw this. Verse 23 from the ESV. By faith, Moses, when he was born, 
was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to, a, to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. I would, I would propose to you today that God is the defender of the weak and helpless as well as those who choose to make themselves weak and helpless as evidenced by this passage of Scripture. And so before we get into the explanation of it though, let's invite the ultimate teacher to come and teach us, which is the Holy Spirit, God Himself. So let's pray. Father, we invite You by Your Holy Spirit to come and make known Your Word to us today. Would You help us to understand this in a very real way? And it's in Jesus' name we pray and God's people said, Amen. So as you're looking at this passage of Scripture, I want you to think about the example of Moses. Moses was, let me give you the backdrop of what's going on at this, for this passage of Scripture. Moses was born into the nation of Israel at a time when they were slaves in Egypt. This is in Exodus chapter 1, which is not part of your homework for this week. Exodus 2 is, but Exodus 1 is not. They were, and now what's happening with the, with the Hebrew people is that they are in Egypt, they're becoming so numerous that Pharaoh, which is not somebody's name, it's the title of an office, Pharaoh believes that they are going to overrun Egypt and be able to take it by their own strength and might. And so he orders that every male child that's born should be thrown in the Nile River to die upon birth. Now, you got to think about this. What's in the Nile River? Snakes, crocodiles, hippos. You know, more people die from hippos every year in Africa than from crocodiles. Hippos are way more aggressive than crocodiles. But think about a Nile crocodile. They're very plentiful. 13 to 16 feet on average. Some of them can be up to 20 feet long. They can weigh up to 2,000 pounds. And we're taking helpless babies and chunking them in the water. What do you think's happening? We're having babies being killed and eaten, and it just is crazy what's going on here. This is the backdrop. Moses is born at this time when they're supposed to be throwing him into the Nile River. His parents hide him until he's a three-month-old baby from the Egyptians, and then they follow the king's edict. They make, a, they make a basket of bulrushes, waterproof it, and put him in the Nile River. At the tender young age of three months old, Moses has the most amazing experience thrust upon him by his God-fearing parents. While he was still too young to care for himself, Moses' life was thrust solely into the hands of God. 
That's what it says in verse 3, or verse 23. By faith, Moses was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And we can think about, oh, they weren't afraid of the king's edict because they hid him for three months. But maybe, just maybe, they weren't afraid that he was actually going to die in the river. Because they put him in. And we know what happened. Pharaoh's daughter saw him, saw the basket. She went over and opened it up. Moses starts crying. She knows he's a Hebrew child. She knows he's supposed to die. She, she's not dumb. His, Moses' sister standing a ways off and he goes, she goes to Moses' sister and says, look, take this child and nurse him and then when he's old enough, bring him back to me. And he goes right back to his family and then right into Pharaoh's house when he's old enough to be raised as one of the royal family of Egypt. You know, it's funny to me that as, as an infant, Moses didn't know any better. He didn't know that he was supposed to be mad at God for this. He, he didn't know that he was supposed to stand grumbling and complaining because God saw fit to put him in a situation where his life was at risk. If your sarcasm meter's not on, you probably ought to turn it on. Okay? He, he didn't know that the average Nile crocodile was 13 to 16 feet long and that it was going to eat him. All he knew was that he was a helpless baby laying inside of a basket. And if somebody didn't take care of him, he was going to die. And God showed up. So how did this affect Moses' outlook on life? I believe that it set him up perfectly for the life of faith that he had to live for God. Yet for some reason it backfired a little bit. I believe it was a perfect setup for what God was calling him to do. But yet it backfired a little bit. Because you remember, in the book of Exodus, and if you haven't read it, you're going to read this stuff this week. In the book of Exodus, we find that what happens is Moses is raised in Pharaoh's household, but he knows that he's a Hebrew, and he sees an Egyptian beating on some Hebrew slaves, and he doesn't like what's happening. And instead of trusting them to God's care, what does Moses do? He goes and kills the guy. He takes matters into his own hands. He decides that he's going to be the defender of the weak. He's going to do what it takes to stop it. He's not going to trust in God. He's probably forgotten already about Joseph's prophetic declaration that after 400 years that they're going to come out of slavery. Or maybe he's remembered it. And he's like, oh, it's getting close to 400 years. It must be me that's supposed to be delivering them. And so he takes matters into his own hands to do it his own way. He's going to bring justice the way he sees fit. And what does it cause him to do? It causes him to have to run away to the land of Midian. Here's this noble man who, who God has intervened in his life, who when he couldn't defend himself, God defended him, and yet now he's taken matters into his own hand, and now he's exiled not only from Pharaoh's house, but from the people that he wants to deliver in the land of Midian. Midian. 
So I want to go back to the question. The question that we're wrestling with this morning is, does God defend those who can defend themselves but choose not to? Because we saw that God clearly defended the baby in the basket. But all of a sudden, it doesn't look like God's defending Moses anymore. So what's he do? He's out in the, he's out in the land of Midian for 40 years and he's learning some hard lessons. And he's made a big mess of all this. And he's learning in the process of this. Think about the burning bush. God calls Moses over. He says, take off your sandals for the ground you're standing on is holy. And Moses goes over there. And God begins to tell him that he's going to deliver his people. And Moses now has all of these reasons why it won't work. All of those reasons, by the way, were things that were based in Moses' strength. Moses didn't want to go and talk to Pharaoh at this point. He didn't want to do any of this stuff. He, he, he decided, you know what, I can't do this, but God is teaching him. No, Moses, I will give you provision, supernatural provision in every situation, but you have to trust me. But you have to put yourselves in a, put yourself in a position of weakness, purposeful weakness, where I am the one who defends you. Brothers and sisters, and I say that with all of the love in my heart, if you can see how to accomplish the task, it's not faith. That's human effort. And I'm not saying that sometimes we don't need to operate in things like that. We do. I know how to fry an egg, and if I want an egg for breakfast, I probably need to not just go over there and throw it in a raw or throw it in a cold skillet and just hope that it'll turn. I mean, no, it's okay to use our brain. God gave it to us for a reason. Amen. Eric's going to use it next Sunday morning to help us make pancakes and stuff. Thank God for Eric's brain. Hallelujah. But, you know, lots of stuff that we look at, lots of stuff that we do, especially when we're in, in turmoil, especially when, when, the, when the bad stuff in life starts coming at us, we start dealing with it in what we think ought to happen rather than saying, God, what do you think I should do? And when God calls us to do something, we back away from it. Because I don't understand how it can work. One of our core values is that we're that God calls us to take faith-filled risks. Faith-filled risks look like, I don't know how this is going to work, but I know that you're saying you're going to do it, and so I'm going to trust you. I'm going to choose to put myself in a position of purposeful weakness in front of you and let you show up in an amazing way. So Moses, he goes back. He's back in, in Egypt. He goes back there. He has to go before Pharaoh and all these things. And so what happens? In the face of the threat of losing all of his provision and his noble standing, Moses chose to trust God. Moses knows that he's a dead man walking if he goes back. Pharaoh wants him dead and he's sure that this has been passed along. What he's done. He is a criminal who has fled justice. And so he goes back. In verse 24 to, to 28, think about this stuff. By faith, Moses, when he's grown, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He said, You know what? I'm not going to trust in my earthly possessions anymore. I've abandoned this. 
The, the strength isn't in my wealth. It's not in the... Lo- and I know they didn't have this back then, but I want to put it in a little modern context. It's not in the really good lawyer that I can hire. It's not in the really smart contract that I can draw up. He's lost his noble standing. He's lost provision. He chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth. Think about that. The reproach of Christ was greater wealth. Reproach, by the way, is not a positive word. Some of us right now are facing things that are coming at us. What will happen if if you trust God in this to defend you? Will you lose your influence? Will you lose your finances? Maybe you'll lose your kids. Especially some of us who have uh, teenagers that are, when I say teenagers, they're 18 but not yet 20. That probably goes to 18, not yet 25. Really. Will, Will we lose our kids? I mean, do we see our kids getting ready to wander away and, and go off into an area? And, and will we put ourselves in a place of weakness rather than on our hu- own human understanding to bring them back? I mean, will we really trust God? I mean, He tells us in the Word, let's just talk about the kids here for just a second. He tells us in the Word that if we raise a child in the way they should go when they're old, they'll not depart from it. Now, some of us are probably worried a little bit because we know we didn't raise our kids in the way they should go. But you're trying now, right? And God's the God of second chances. Are you willing to put yourself in that position where you can lose those kind of things? Maybe you're going to lose your reputation. When you get accused of being a cult leader inside the alliance, guys, that's a big deal. That's not, and, and, and had that went the other way, oh, I'm trying to transfer denominations, you know. Well, well, why aren't you in that denomination? Well, because they think I'm a cult leader. It's probably not going to go real well, is it? Another friend of mine was the pastor of, of, a, of an alliance church in Birmingham, and he came under accusation of sexual abuse towards a, a, a teenager. He didn't do it. He was found not guilty in a criminal court. And then the family took him to civil court. And he won that case. And he'll never pastor again. His reputation was taken away. When it all came down, the first thing, when the accusation came down, the first thing he did is he went to the district superintendent. He said, put me on discipline right now. I didn't do it. But put me on discipline right now. Because 
this will come back just like with the Catholic Church, all those things that happen where people are being accused and, and supervisors aren't doing enough about it. He said, put me on discipline. It will probably destroy my reputation. I trust God. Just put me on discipline. He lost his career, and he was close to 50 when this happened. He lost it all. But see, he was willing to trust God in that. And I don't know how it turned out for him at this point. We've lost contact since then. I don't know exactly what's going on in his life now. But I think that he figured out something, and it's something that I figured out, but then I forget, and then I figure out again, and then I forget, and then I figure out again, and then I forget. So that Moses in this whole thing learned that the only thing he had to fear was the displeasure of God with the choices he made. See, we've all heard the speech, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. No. The only thing we have to fear is God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God wants you to fear Him. He says it in His Word over and over and over and over and over and over again. And we explain that away by, oh, well, he wants us to stand reverent, sorry, reverently before him and go, oh, that's what he's talking about, fear. No. Isaiah, in his vision, he saw the Lord and he said, I, woe unto me. Doesn't sound like reverent fear, does it? I keep trying to make up a word in my mind that's part of reverent, but it's completely this wacky ending. It's not a word. Anyways, that's why I keep stumbling. But he uh, says, reverent, he says, Woe unto me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I have looked upon the Lord, and I will surely perish. I mean, he was afraid. Moses was afraid. Moses decided that, you know what? The thing I fear more than Pharaoh, the thing that I fear more than all of this, is God's displeasure in me. And so I will follow Him. I will choose to be weak. You know, Moses could have certainly pursued defending the Hebrews by his own cunning, wisdom, and strength of numbers. Remember, the, the, the Hebrew people had become so numerous... That Pharaoh was afraid that they were going to run, overrun the Egyptians. We've got a foreign army among us that knows everything about us, that knows where we keep the good stuff, that knows where we keep the weapons, that knows where we keep all of everything. Moses could have chosen to go this route. But instead, Moses made a conscious decision to take a defenseless position and rest in God's supernatural protection. Moses chose to take a defenseless position and rest in God's supernatural protection. Think about this. Ten plagues, right? He comes back. First thing he does, comes back, he takes the staff that's in his hand, he appears before Pharaoh. Pharaoh's like, yeah, right, why should I listen to you? Moses throws down his staff, it turns into a snake. The sorcerer's like, hey, we got that. Boom, they throw it down. They turn into snakes. Right? 
I mean, Moses' position is looking pretty defenseless. Moses did this. They did it twice. Moses doesn't back away, though. He continues to allow God to do all of the defending. The next thing that happens, Moses goes and turns the Nile River into blood. Kind of fitting, considering it had been blood once before, when all those babies were being thrown in there and eaten. Then a plague of frogs. Then like the stupidest plague in the world, the plague of gnats. Let me just get on your nerves. Right? I mean, you, you know, think about it. The plague of gnats. You know, I'm pretty sure that plague comes every summer. You know? And they're so little and just annoying. Then a plague of flies. Then the livestock die. What are we going to eat? I don't know. Then boils. Then hail. And, well, I guess we're thinking about being vegetarians, except for now the locusts come along and eat everything. And then the second stupidest plague, darkness. I mean, I don't think these are really stupid, but you get my point, right? And you think about this. Nine plagues, plus the turn in the staff into a snake. And over and over and over again, who does it look like one? Pharaoh. It always looks like Pharaoh wins. It says every time and the magicians did by their secret arts the same thing. And Pharaoh will be like, okay, fine, go. And then as soon as the plague stops, like, nope, er, nope, can't go. You know, you think Moses is probably smart enough to figure out after the third or fourth time that Pharaoh's going to pull back. And he doesn't go, no, we're not going to come. I'm not going to call the plague off until we're out. No, he, 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 calls, he, he calls it off. The plague gets called off. All of these times, over and over and over again, it looks like Pharaoh wins. Yet Moses continued to choose a position of weakness and dependence on God. Believing beyond belief, believing beyond all reasonable expectation that God would defend him as he chose not to defend himself or the people. And we know the tenth plague was the plague of the firstborn. We're getting ready next Sunday to celebrate Easter. That's at the end of the Passover week. The Passover is remembering back to this 10th plague where they're told to just take the blood of a spotless lamb and put it on their doorpost and their, and their mantle and that the destroyer of the firstborn would pass over them. Me, if I'm doing it in my own strength, I'm not putting blood and hoping the angel sees it. I'm like, dude, I'm out of Egypt. I'm, I'm getting away from here. But when they chose to put themselves in a position of weakness, when Moses chose to put himself in a position of weakness, they were passed over. The destroyer didn't come in and take their firstborn. But he did for all the Egyptians. 
Some of you are facing horrible struggles and horrible trials and horrible things that are going on inside of your life right now. Some of you are on the verge of losing your kids to worldly ways or maybe on the verge of losing your job or maybe on the verge of losing relationships or whatever it is. Will you choose a position of weakness? And I can put this into a million different applications. Finances are falling apart. Will you trust God with them? Will you tithe? Tithing says, I trust you, God. I will intentionally put myself in a position of weakness. That's an easy one to pick on. Maybe you can go at work and, the, and you're getting ready to lose your job and maybe there's something that you can say, but you're going to have to badmouth somebody else in order to, to get it through. And the Lord's saying, no, trust me. Don't open your mouth. Shut up. I'll take care of your job. Are you willing to do that? Will you choose to let God defend you in the trials and struggles you are facing? Or are you going to take matters into your own hands? I know this is hard to live out. This was such a hard lesson for me to live out that I had to get this as a stone of remembrance and pay to have a frame custom made and pay to have... This is not just regular glass. This is like crazy glass that will protect it from ever fading and all of this stuff so that I can be reminded time and time again throughout the rest of my ministry. It hangs on the wall of my office to say, Trust me, Jerry. Shut up and let me defend you, Jerry. Shut up and trust me, Jerry. I need to be reminded of that time and time again because I am often tempted to take matters into my own hands and deal with it. And I think that God is saying to you today, will you trust me? Will you let me defend you? I know it's hard. It did not make sense when this was all happening with Darlene for me to sit there with my mouth shut. But God said, choose to put yourself in a position of weakness. And even if Darlene had been able to take me out, God still had me. Even if I get taken out now, God's still got me. The enemy can't take away my salvation. If I lose everything, if I lose my home or, or whatever, I'm not going to be the first person in the world that's happened to. If you lose everything, you're not going to be the first person in the world that that happens to. And in the end, you win anyways if you're saved. If you're born again by the Spirit of God, the enemy can't take away your salvation. So you're going to win. Will you put yourself in a position of weakness or are you going to take it into your own hands? Here's the homework for the week and then I'm going to tell you our application that we're going to do real quick. Monday, Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. And then basically the rest of the week you're going to read from chapter 7 through chapter 12, verse 42. But Tuesday, Exodus 7, 1 through 24. Wednesday, Exodus 1, or 8, 1 through 32. Thursday, Exodus 9, 1 through 35. Friday, Exodus 10, 1 through 29. 
And Saturday, Exodus 1, or excuse me, 11, 1, through chapter 12, verse 42. Chapter 11 is only 10 verses, so don't get freaked out. And by the way, you could read two chapters in a day. It's okay anyways. But this is, the, this is Moses running away. First being thrown in the river as a baby, but then running away, and then it's the plagues. Because I want you to see that time and time and time again, Moses chose to put himself in a defenseless position. So here's our challenge. The, the worship team is going to come back forward. I'm going to ask Mark, just Mark. The worship team can come in a minute for the offering, but just you come and play. Okay, on the guitar. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have an altar call. But here's what I'm asking you to do for the altar call. Talk to no one. Sit where you're at, altar call right where you're at, and say, God, I'm putting myself in a completely defenseless position. I've got this trial that's going on in my life. I'm asking you right now to speak to me, not through somebody else. Speak directly to my spirit. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. I'm trusting myself to you. If it's my job, tell me what I'm supposed to do. If it's my kids, tell me what I'm supposed to do. If it's my marriage, tell me what I'm supposed to do. If it's this, tell me what I'm supposed to do. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. I'm trusting myself into your care. What am I supposed to do? Trust Him. Let's pray. Father, I pray during this altar call time that people will hear from you. And rather, Lord, than us hearing from each other and, and us in coming like we always do, which is a good thing, Lord, to bless each other, to encourage each other, to do all those things. Father, would you speak directly to our spirits about the challenges that we are facing right now? And would you tell us what it is to trust you in these? Would you give us that step that we're supposed to do? We want to choose intentionally this position of weakness. So we ask you to speak. Lord, tell each one of us individually what it means to keep our eyes on the harvest. Lord, give us our own picture of barley. We ask it in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen.